The question that we want to address this morning, it was a question actually asked of John the Baptist uh, when he was baptizing at the Jordan River. The people who were there and who were expressing their repentance through water baptism then asked John this question, what should we do then? How do we respond to this message of the kingdom of God? And today we want to look at that question and answer that question with three words that Jesus uses for the proper response to the kingdom of God. But uh, I'm a professor and a teacher, and we believe maletetapan in Greek, which means practice is everything or repetition is everything. And repetition means I want to repeat the five points about the kingdom And if I repeat them often enough, maybe you will agree with me, because you'll think that way. I've often said this about reading Karl Barth. He repeats him so often, and he goes for so many thousands of pages that by the time you're done, you've been brainwashed by his theories. Well, the five themes of the kingdom is we have to have a king, and the king is God expressing himself as king on earth through Jesus and having earthly kings in the Old Testament who represent God on earth. The second is that this God rules, and he rules by governing, and he rules by redeeming people so they can enter into his governing rule. Third, there is a people, and this is a critical dimension of understanding kingdom, that kingdom is a people. It is not simply the rule of God in the world. It is the rule of God over a people. And in the Bible, those people are Israel expanded into the church in the New Testament as Israel makes room for Gentiles. So many Gentiles, they've kind of pushed uh, Israel and Jews aside. And that's, that's not good, but we can work on that at some other time. Fourth is the idea of law. And this is, how does God ask his people to live? The Old Testament Torah of Moses is the legislation for Israel as a nation to know how to live when they're in the land. Well, this legislation is developed in the pages of the New Testament, so much so that there's themes of fulfillment, there's uh, there's themes of setting aside in some ways, there's themes of expansion, there's themes of new direction. And we look today at the Sermon on the Mount, or we've looked at the Sermon on the Mount in passing, And the Sermon on the Mount becomes, in the New Testament, the first grand expression of how kingdom people are to live. And then the Apostle Paul develops this in Life in the Spirit, and the other apostles add their own nuances to it. But this is the question we want to ask today. Well, the fifth theme uh, that we'll look at tomorrow is how this uh, kingdom uh, is expressed in a land, and how that land promise expands in the New Testament as the church begins to evangelize throughout the entire world. So today we want to ask the question, how do kingdom people live? What does Jesus expect of his followers? And um, Jesus expects a lot. And sometimes when you read the Gospels, you can become positively uncomfortable. No one reads the Sermon on the Mount for comfort. It doesn't work that way. 
And when Jesus says things as he did in Matthew chapter 5, I love how he finishes the first chapter of the Sermon on the Mount. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now that's, that's a good way to start the day. It's, it's a challenge as to what Jesus means. But Jesus has the capacity to say over-the-top things to us that we take to be maybe exaggerations, but oh so true. He calls us to surrender ourselves completely. You know, No one who follows me who doesn't say goodbye to his mother and father is worthy of the king. This is the sort of language Jesus says all the time. Foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And the implication is, come follow me and you'll have no idea where you're going to spend the night and where you're going to get your food. But we're on a kingdom adventure and I'm calling you to join me in this kingdom adventure. So routinely, Jesus calls his disciples to surrender themselves completely to him and let him guide them. And he uses very strong language for this. But I want to narrow it down because we don't have forever uh, for discussion. I want to narrow it down to three terms. The three terms that I think perhaps express the most important terms that Jesus uses for how followers of Jesus are to walk. I would say these are three critical terms for understanding the Christian life according to Jesus. The first one you should agree with, even Peter will agree with me on this one, is love. There's a great passage in Mark chapter 12. One of the teachers of the law, called a soper in Hebrew, came and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. So, you know, he's, he's intrigued by Jesus. You know, he's got some pretty good theology and understanding of Torah going on. He can kibitz with the best of them. He asked Jesus, of all the commandments, and this is sort of a Snow White type question, which is the fairest of them all? Well, Jesus said the most important one is this. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad Achafta Eit Adonai Eloheka Bechol Levavka Vubukol Nafshecha Vubukol Modecha. I'm not charismatic, so don't get too excited. I am charismatic, but not like that. He said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Echad. It's a great Hebrew word. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and he adds, with all your mind and all your strength. So the scribe got the answer, and I think the scribe would have said, ah, come on. We all heard this since we were kids. And Jesus said, don't interrupt me. I have a second. And he said, I didn't ask you for two. I asked you for one. I'm making some of this up, but you can see it in the text. And he said, the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus offered what I think is one of the shortest commentaries in the Bible, but at the same time, a brilliant analysis of how Jesus understands the will of God 
for his people. He said, there is no commandment greater than these. Because in the Hebrew world, in the Jewish world of Jesus, people were debating, which is the greatest commandment? How do we sort out the 613 commandments and prohibitions of the Pentateuch? 365 positive and 258 prohibitions. So much so that one time uh, in a school, there's a story of a rabbi, uh, of a man coming into a rabbi, and he, I'm going to see if I can do this on my bad, uh, on one leg. He said to, uh, Hill, uh, to Shammai, teach me the whole Torah as I stand on one leg. And Shammai was kind of a bonehead, a tough kind of guy, and he took out a stick and he whacked him on the head. So he went to a more liberal synagogue with Hillel, and he went to Hillel and he said, teach me the whole Torah as I stand on one leg. I'm not doing so well here. And you know what Hillel said? Do not do to others what you don't want done to you. Go and do these things. Well, this is pretty close to Jesus, you know. Do to others what you would have them do to you. There was a debate about which is the greatest commandment, and this was sort of a comical, storied way of trying to put this together. Can you reduce the Torah so much that I can master it while I'm standing on one leg? And Jesus responds into that very discussion, perhaps, and says... Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. You can do that on one leg if you don't have a bum leg. Because Jesus is willing to reduce Torah to love so that all the commandments are simply illustrations of either loving God or loving others. Jesus grew up in a world, though, where many of the Pharisees and the Zealots and the Essenes would have seen loving God to be so paramount that they were not being loving toward others. And this is why Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan, because there were people who thought they could love God by observing um, kosher laws, laws about purity and holiness and keeping yourself clean, but could walk around someone, the Greek actually says, semi-dead. Now, what does that mean? Don't ask a doctor. But what does it mean to be semi-dead? It means not quite dead, so much so that you could act in mercy, but no, because they were afraid the person might, (coughs) could be could be dead or might die, they did not want to touch that body. And later rabbinic law would say that they would have walked far enough away that not even their shadow would have touched that body because the shadow as an extension of the self would have made them unclean. And oh, they thought they were so good because they loved God. And Jesus said, you don't love God if you also don't love others as yourself. So Jesus brings together 
love of God and loving uh, and love of others. I call this the Jesus Creed. And in the Jewish world, every morning, <clears throat> every observant Jew to begin the day. So Jesus, when he's probably three or four years old, would have been brought to his knees by his mother, Mariam, or his father, Yosef, and they would have said to Yeshua every morning and every evening, and every day, every time we leave this house, and every time we walk into this house, and every time we are on the path walking, we say as Jews to mark us out and to remind us of our obligation of, co- of Torah observance, of how to live as covenant people before God, we say, Hear, O Israel, Shema Israel, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your strength. So Jesus would have grown up with this. And so when the scribe asks him, what is the greatest commandment, Jesus gives it to him a very old traditional answer from the prayer book of Judaism. And the scribe was shocked when Jesus added a second and lifted from your favorite book in the Bible and mine, Leviticus, right? I used to tell my college students, if you don't understand Leviticus, you don't understand Jesus, because that's his world of Leviticus. And he lifted from this text in Leviticus 19.18. And I have never seen in any Jewish literature from the time of Moses till the time of Jesus anyone quote Leviticus 19.18 and no one ties it to the Shema of Deuteronomy 6 of Hero Israel. So this combination is unique to Jesus of combining Shema, Hero Israel, with love your neighbor as yourself to form the creed of the followers of Jesus. And because every Jew said this every morning and every evening and throughout the day, I decided in about 2002, when as I was teaching a course on spiritual formation and using textbooks from spiritual formation experts, I became very discontented because I thought it wasn't expressive enough of the Jewish world of Jesus and how Jesus understands spiritual formation. So I investigated this, and I was shocked how pervasive, surprised to my delight, how pervasive love of God and love of others is in the teaching of Jesus. So I began this practice, that every morning when I put my feet on the ground, and every evening when I take my feet off the ground, I say the Jesus Creed. And I say it in Hebrew because it makes me feel smarter than most people. And that's the only reason. But it is kind of fun to hear it in Hebrew, isn't it? You like that, Trevor? You do, yeah. Sounds Gaelic, doesn't it? No, it doesn't. And then I made this promise that I would say it any time I was prompted to say it or it came to mind throughout the day. And I found it very disturbing because it had the capacity constantly to remind me that I was supposed to respond to all people I encountered in a loving way. It was much easier not knowing that. It was much easier to be irritated with people. Students would come in my office, and they'd say, 
I just saw in the syllabus last night, you know, you've heard this story, that we have a paper due today and I, I didn't get it done. Can I, can I have an extension? And I thought, and, and I gave you that syllabus two months ago and you haven't looked at it since, since I... And I thought, now how do I respond? I would say to myself, but instead of telling this student off and reminding them of the obligation and the power that I have to fail them at this moment, I would think to myself, how do I respond to this student in this moment in a loving way? And it changed my relationship with students at times. It particularly changed my relationship with students I didn't like. And if you think there aren't those students, you haven't been a teacher. Because there's always those irritants in class. Jesus had irritants in his class. Judas, for instance. He could have been real difficult to get. How would you like to teach Peter? Always popping off about something. Saying the wrong thing at the wrong time. John was easy. He seems to have been a quiet guy. Sensitive. A mystic. Always thinking about God and contemplation. So I began to practice this. And, and I would encourage you to try this for one month. Every morning when you get up, say, it's Mark 12, verses 29 through 31. It's not that hard. Hear, O Israel. This is important for us to remind ourselves that our ethic emerges out of Israel's ethic because this is the story of our Bible. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. That's not hard to memorize. Love the Lord your God. Just a few things. With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. And the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then you can say what Jesus said at the end, although it's a little bit different in Matthew. He said, there is no commandment greater than these. Matthew has, from these two commandments, all the commandments hang. And that is, all the other commandments are expressions of love of God and love of others. But I also want to warn you that this could revolutionize your life. When I first began to teach this, uh, when I was teaching college students, Sitting in the back was a student by the name of Tim King. He was the first student ever to come to class with a, with a computer, and he took notes on a computer, and he could type oh so quietly, so it wasn't disturbing. I had others shortly who were tapping away, and it was noisy in class, and I had to remind them to type quieter. Tim King was a young man, very passionate about his Christian faith, and he comes to me, at the end of the term, and he said, he said, yo, Scott, he said, at the beginning of the term, you taught us to say the Jesus Creed. So he says, I began to say it in the morning as I left my apartment and as I walked the campus. And he said, over a few weeks, I began to notice that there were homeless people uh, on the street that I would encounter. And they were there every day. And he said, this is what's weird. He said, they've been there for two years, and I never noticed them until I began to say the Jesus Creed. And he said, I want to tell you something that we did. He said, because of the Jesus Creed, we decided to invite the homeless people in the neighborhood into our apartment, and we threw a pizza party for them. And we talked to some of them about Jesus. And he said, I just want you to know it's really messing up my life. 
That spring, Tim King led something on our campus that became uh, all, it, it grew all across campuses. And that is they expressed solidarity with homeless by making a commitment on a certain day, regardless of the weather, they announced it in advance. It was like April in Chicago. Now that might not mean anything to you, but this is balmy weather for April sometimes in Chicago. They decided that they would spend the night outside without a sleeping bag. They could wear what they normally wear as a form of solidarity and identification with the homeless. The next fall, because of Tim's activism about the homeless in Chicago, he got invited to a G8 meeting in England somewhere to talk about what college students in the United States are doing for the homeless. And I thought, that'll teach you to say the Jesus Creed. <laughs> then Tim came to me uh, in, the, in April of his year of graduation for advice. And he said, yo, Scott, he said, I have two options in my life. He said, I'm thinking of doing a PhD in theological studies. I've been admitted to study at Duke University with Stanley Hauerwas. Pretty big. And he said, I've also been offered an opportunity to work with the homeless in Chicago. What should I do? I quoted Jesus. And I said, Tim, the poor will always be with you. Go to Duke. You should have laughed about that. That, That's a misuse of the language of Jesus. At any rate, I tried. And Tim comes to me at graduation, and he says, I've made my decision. I thought, awesome, you can study with Howard Wass. He said, I'm going to work with the homeless. I said, Tim, the poor will always be with you. Go study with Stanley Howard Wass. At the end, at least once a year, Tim would give me an email or a phone call, and he'd say, I want to be on campus on Tuesday. Let's have lunch. He'd always add, at your expense. And he would come and he would talk to me about ministry to the homeless in the city of Chicago. And he did this for about three years. And his reputation grew of his capacity uh, to be sensitive toward the homeless. And Jim Wallace scarfed him up in Washington, D.C. at Sojourners. And Tim became Jim Wallace's right-hand man and actually worked on his books. And now Tim is farming in New Hampshire living out the Jesus Creed, providing food in natural ways for people in New Hampshire. He's never yet gone to study with Stanley Hauerwas, and Hauerwas retired. So I remind him of that every now and then. But I think Tim would say he would never change what he did in life. So what I'm saying to you is, yes, this is the piety of Jesus, to love God and love others, and to repeat this so much so that it works its way into our bones and our soul. And it will prompt little moments in the day when you say, I wasn't very nice to that person at the grocery store. Or, I need to control myself as I drive on these highways. Or, my children are really a pain, but I need to respond in loving ways. Or my spouse. All right. So every now and then, Um, Chris will say to me, that wasn't very Jesus Creed-like. I'll go, okay. 
So one day I caught her. I said, Chris, that wasn't very Jesus Creed-like. You know what she said? I didn't write that book. You did. You have to live up to that, not me. And I don't know why you think that's so funny. <laughs> but it will be an irritant in your life, a good irritant that will make growth. But it could also be a radical change in your life as well. It may change you in ways you never expected. I only, you know, I've already defined what love is. A rugged commitment to be with, for, and unto. And that's what Jesus meant, to love your neighbor as yourself. Making rugged commitments to be with people, to be for them, and to work with them to grow into Christ-likeness. But here's the important download of the word love in the teachings of Jesus. A spiritually formed person, according to Jesus is someone who loves God and loves others. It is not someone who prays every day. It is not someone who reads their Bible every day. It is not someone who goes to church every Sunday morning and every Wednesday night and at choir practice on Thursday night and goes to New Horizon five days and doesn't leave early and attends 10 o'clock sessions even in the rain. Which is normal, I understand, in Ireland. So what's the difference, you know? No, a spiritually formed person for Jesus is someone who loves God and loves others. And we need to repeat this because love does not naturally grow on our trees. We struggle with loving people we don't like. That's why we have the Jesus Creed, because it will show to us the people we don't like. In the United States, we, uh, Americans, as a rule, don't like Muslims. They don't like gays, they don't like the people of the opposite political party, and they don't like people who have more money than they do. And that's why Americans need the Jesus Creed. I can guess why the people of Northern Ireland need the Jesus Creed. And you can fill in the lines. Because you naturally have your own enemies. And that's why Jesus gave you the Jesus Creed. And a spiritually formed person loves their neighbor as themselves. And not only that, Jesus went even further and he said, love your enemies. And what he meant there is, turn your enemies into your neighbors. By loving them so much, you make rugged commitments to be with them, for them, and unto Christ-likeness. We have to move on because I'm running out of time. The second word is righteousness. The second word is righteousness. That was a very smooth transition to the second point, wasn't it? Sorry, Trevor. I'm a teacher. I'm not a, I'm not a preacher. Matthew 5, 6. I want to read these verses from the Sermon on the Mount because I believe the word righteousness, the Hebrew tzaddik, tzedekah, uh, th- this word is one of the most important words for Jesus in the Jewish world to describe how a person relates to God and what God has taught us and how he's taught us to live. Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst or ache for righteousness, for they will be filled. Verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The only word praised twice in the Beatitudes 
is righteousness. In verse 20, we have one of the strongest statements Jesus ever made. For I tell you that unless your righteousness, and this is not translated in most translations, unless your righteousness greatly surpasses the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never ever enter into the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus is saying to his disciples that your righteousness must be better than the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees because it conforms to my teachings which fulfill Moses' teachings and their righteousness is conformity to Moses but your righteousness will be conformity to me as your Lord, as your Savior, as your new Moses and greater Moses. Matthew 5.20 Matthew chapter 6 verse 1 Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. And then finally, in verse 33, a a line that we used to sing when I was in high school, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. The Sermon on the Mount is actually an exposition of the meaning of the word righteousness. And a person who was righteous in the first century was Jesus's father. I'll just call Joseph his father. He is called in Matthew 1.19 when he realizes that Mary is pregnant. It said Joseph being righteous. That is, he was a tzaddik. He was known as someone who knew the Torah and its interpretation and had conformed his life to that Torah and its interpretation. He was an observant Jew. But he decided, because he was an observant Jew, and his life conformed to the law of God as taught by Moses, to divorce Mary secretly. And then he had an encounter with the angel who told him not to do that. And in a sense, that God had changed his mind on that law for him and for him alone, and he was going to have to marry her anyway. So he married Mary. And this uh, erupted into a new family for the kingdom of God. I just want to break down in a few words the meaning of the word righteousness in the Sermon on the Mount. The word righteousness means, this is the essential meaning, it means on the basis of a relationship, one conforms one's behavior to one's rules. Now the rules of God are redemptive covenant obligations upon his people who have been redeemed And now in the New Testament are people who have the Spirit indwelling them and have experienced the transforming grace of God. So in the New Testament, to be righteous is to be a person whose life is being transformed by the grace of God to obey what Jesus taught. But Jesus doesn't play game with his disciples. He expects them to follow him. A disciple of Jesus is someone who follows Jesus. A follower of Jesus follows Jesus. It's that simple. And following Jesus means doing what Jesus says. It means knowing what Jesus says and doing it. It involves good deeds. Let your light shine before men so that they may see your good deeds, your acts of benevolence toward others, and glorify your fathers in heaven. In Matthew 5, 17 to 48, it means listening attentively 
to the teachings of Jesus as he, in a sense, modifies, expands, and fulfills the teachings of Moses. Matthew five seventeen to 48 has these great statements. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. And he focuses on some pretty serious topics. Those topics include um, murder, adultery, divorce, oaths, and an eye for an eye and love for enemies. So Jesus focuses on those topics as important for his followers at that time. It is also, uh, righteousness is not simply doing good deeds, and it is not simply listening and following Jesus. It is also a relationship to God. That's why in Matthew 6, 1, be careful not to practice your righteousness before men to be seen by them, but instead, Jesus says, you will have, if you do it that way, you will have no reward with God. But when you give alms, when you fast, when you pray, engage with God. Not to be seen. You know, in the United States, we like to raise a lot of money for churches by motivating people by putting their name on a brick or on a building. This is so counter to what Jesus is actually saying. That's such a selfish way of motivating people. I'm not saying it's wrong to have your name on a brick. But if that's your motivation, you're failing to do what Jesus said. Not so you'll be noticed, but because you want to give to the glory of God, and give to the work of God in this world. And Jesus teaches that righteousness in the Sermon on the Mount makes God first in life. Not mammon, verses 19 through 34, not wealth, not treasures, not worrying about food, clothing, and drink, but rather trusting God. Seek first the kingdom of God and the righteousness of God, and all these things will be added to you. So we are called to be righteous. Now I just have a few minutes left, and I want to focus on this, so I'm transitioning now into a third point. Okay? Cross. Cross. In Mark chapter 8, we have one of the most profound statements in all of moral literature throughout the history of the world on how people are to live. Jesus has been ministering publicly long enough now for people to get a pretty good feel for what he's all about, and it's very confusing for some people, like his mother and John the Baptist. They're confused. So Jesus calls the crowd in Mark 8:34, along with his disciples, and he said, and he just, this is, this is the point. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross, Luke adds, daily, and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words... In this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And then Jesus offers a statement that has confused New Testament interpreters for 2,000 years. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God has come with power. In this text, it seems to mean the transfiguration, but let's not go there. 
Jesus says that the essential requirement to follow him is to die. To use the cross as an image is to use a brutal instrument of torture and capital punishment. It's easy and a little bit cheap to pick on people wearing diamond-studded necklaces with a cross on it. It's a little of a contradiction to what Jesus meant, but I appreciate anyone who wears the symbol of the cross. This was a brutal instrument used by the Roman Empire against people they considered a threat and seditious and rebellious. Human beings were stripped naked and publicly exposed and hung or nailed to a cross. They were refused a family burial. The family was deeply shamed by any kind of act of crucifixion. And they, their bodies, of course, rotted and decayed on the cross and they were eaten by wild animals and picked apart by birds. Okay, it's pretty gross. But Jesus chose that for what discipleship is all about. Because to to be a disciple of Jesus, we must die to self. It suggests martyrdom. It suggests people like who I now call Hallelujah Bob. What's his last name? McAllister? Hallelujah, he said. And he talked about martyrs. He looked in the face of death and he said, bring it on. That's the sort of thing that it means to die for the sake of Jesus. To give our life to him no matter what it entails. I like, I like the Christian practice practiced in both the Eastern Orthodox tradition and in the Roman Catholic tradition of making the sign of the cross upon ourselves. From the second century on, Christians began to mark themselves in the morning when they were saying the Lord's Prayer with the sign of the cross because it reminded them it wasn't magical, it wasn't an amulet, it wasn't anything superstitious, it was the realization that their life was marked by the cross. And in my life, uh, I have seen this work itself out in Paul's literature when he says that they have to die to themselves in Colossians 2.20 and following. In Peter, who said that Christ had left, us an, uh, left you an example to follow in his steps in 1 Peter chapter 2. And we've seen it, I've seen it in the lives of many people. But when I was a college student, a sophomore, I discovered when I was too young, but it didn't stop me from reading him, the great theologian from Germany by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I have been reading Dietrich Bonhoeffer since 1973. I love Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I have to read some of Bonhoeffer every year to keep my life engaged the way it should be. He's a deep reminder to me of the way of the cross. And on page, uh, in, in a I want to quote one of his great lines uh, because it has been quoted by so many when he talked about taking up the cross. He said, those who enter into discipleship enter into Jesus' death. This is why we take the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper. We are participating in the death of Christ. They turn their living 
into dying. Such has been the case from the very beginning. The cross is not the terrible end of a pious, happy life. Instead, it stands at the beginning of community with Jesus Christ, or communion with Jesus Christ. Whenever Christ calls us, his call leads us to death. Now, in the original English translation, there was a very poetic line by Reginald Fuller that said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. That's a nice expression, but better than Bonhoeffer himself. He said, when Christ calls us, his call leads to death. Whether we, like the first disciples, must leave house and vocation to follow him, or whether with Luther we leave the monastery for a secular vocation, in both cases the same death awaits us, namely, death in Jesus Christ, the death of our old self caused by the call of Jesus. I believe that death was the central idea of Bonhoeffer's great book, originally called in in English, The Cost of Discipleship. The new translation is just discipleship. The German title was Nachfolge, which means to follow. But maybe the best story about Bonhoeffer is that he was at Union Seminary For about a month, he had been invited by the great Reinhold Niebuhr and Paul Lehman to come be a professor at Union Seminary, which was a major institution in the United States prior to World War II. And Bonhoeffer came to Union Seminary and spent the entire month, according to his biographer, smoking cigarettes and trying to type things that he just rolled up. And after he left the office, all they found in the office was cigarette butts and mounds of paper that had been crumpled up because he couldn't express himself. He came to the United States as an opportunity to escape Hitler's Germany and the German church's struggle with Hitler. And he thought he was betraying his people. So he told Reinhold Niebuhr in a great letter, I have a choice to make, to save Germany and lose the church or to save the church and lose Germany. And he got on the next boat and returned to Germany. And he developed an entire theory of his life that he would enter back into Germany as an innocent man. And he would enter into the guilt of Germany that it was at that time betraying the gospel in the German church. And he said, I will enter into that and I will die for that church and maybe God will accept me as a sacrifice for Germany and save the church. Now some of us might think that's a little blasphemous. To think that you could participate in your own death as a substitutionary death for Germans' failure to live up to the gospel. And Bonhoeffer actually used the German word Stellvertretung for his own death. That is a substitutionary, vicarious sacrifice on behalf of the nation. But I think that this is one of the deepest expressions of the cross in all of church history. Bonhoeffer knew that what awaited him when he entered back into the German church situation under Hitler, that there was only one outcome, he would die, which he did in Flossenburg. And he hung from a piano wire for hours, torturing and barely living on the edge of life and death. 
a part of the story that is largely unknown. And Bonhoeffer was faithful to the end, ministering as a pastor to all the prisoners in the prisons in Germany, in Berlin, in Tegel Prison. And then he was taken underground to where he could no longer communicate with people, and we largely lost touch with him. But there were people along the way who encountered him. Now, that's a dramatic story, but it is a perfect expression of what Jesus meant when he said, take up the cross and follow me. If it means death, it means martyrdom, because that's the cross that Jesus himself bore. It's the cross that many of the apostles bore. It's the cross that many Christians in the first four centuries bore. It's the cross that Anabaptists during the Reformation bore. It's the cross that many missionaries have bore. It's the cross that many Christians throughout the world today are bearing, even if we don't know, because they're willing, because of who Jesus is, to take up this kingdom vision and die for Jesus, because he is the one who has died on our behalf and in front of us. Three words for discipleship with Jesus. Love, righteousness, and cross. There are no better words in the Bible for our obligation as kingdom people to live before Jesus. Let's pray. Father, today we take up this serious calling and we listen to you and we ask for you to guide us in the way of the cross, in the way of righteousness, and in the way of love. For we realize that genuine love is self-sacrificing for the sake of others, and righteousness sacrifices our will for your will. And may the cross be what marks us at all times. In Jesus' name, amen.